Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 57, The Institutions of Terror. In the last episode, we completed our survey of the crises which imperiled the French Revolution. With the sans-culottes of the capital continuing to radicalise, the threats to the convention were not just in Belgium, not just in the Vendée, but also in Paris itself. In this episode, we'll explore how the convention responded to these threats. In particular, we'll examine the legislation which created the institutions which enable the coming reign of terror. We'll be exploring everything from the representatives on mission to the Revolutionary Tribunal, and of course, we will finally introduce the Committee of Public Safety. The episode extra for this episode examines Danton's famous speech calling for the Revolutionary Tribunal and a complete reorganisation of the ministry, a speech acclaimed by historians from across the ideological spectrum. Of course, this show is only possible thanks to the support of the Grey History community. The community is what allows this podcast to continue. And I can't stress enough how appreciative I am of those sponsoring the show. If you're enjoying Grey History, if you find it entertaining, if you find it educational, then I need your help to continue to produce history that isn't black and white. It takes a ridiculous amount of time to produce episodes of this length and detail, and there's a real risk that I won't be able to do so for much longer. So please, Support the show, get access to a range of perks, and help produce history that doesn't skim over the details. There's a link in the show notes, on the website, or just Google Grey History Patreon. It's with great pleasure that I get to introduce the newest members of the Grey History community. A warm welcome to the new virtuous citizens, Marcin, Michael, Mark, Russell, Cassandra, John, Garrett, Jim, and Nora. Another warm welcome to the newest true revolutionaries, Jackie, Tamson, and Michelle, and a thank you to Michelle for increasing their pledge. Speaking of increasing one's support for the show, a big thank you to Tom. Tom's been promoting the podcast on social media and has also joined the ranks of the Champions of the People. All revolutions need their champions. So a special thank you to Cynthia, George, Tim, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, Susan, Adam, and now Tom. Finally, one final thank you to the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, and Olga. Before we get into it, I'd like to make a quick thank you to those people who have been leaving written reviews sharing the show on social media, writing in words of encouragement, and just helping grey history in some other way. I need your support to continue to create grey history, so between now and the next episode, if you can find just one opportunity to share the show with friends or family, that would be amazing. Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into it. In the immediate aftermath of the soap and sugar riots, the situation was anything 
but bubbles and sweets. The capital was disorderly, the people were hungry, and the convention was beset by division. Perhaps most worryingly, the word insurrection increasingly appeared on the lips of Sankulots. Desperate to relieve their genuine plight, the emerging ultra-radicals were ready to use force. In itself, the deteriorating situation in Paris was a considerable threat to the revolutionary project. Yet, in the weeks that followed, the revolution was hit with a whole host of additional crises in short succession. Having experienced significant unrest in Paris in February, it was less than a week later that the Austrians and the Prussians launched their coordinated counterattack. Within days, it quickly became clear that de Maurier's Dutch invasion was in disarray. With French forces in flight, both Belgium and the Rhineland were rapidly returning to the yoke of tyranny. France could be next. Recruitment riots, civil war, and de Maurier's attempted coup had not yet materialised, but they would in a matter of weeks. Taken together, this series of existential threats would change the course and character of the French Revolution. With the nation on the brink of calamity, three important developments would have a profound impact on the revolution's future. Firstly, throughout March and April, the deputies would introduce a series of legislative measures designed to fight back. These measures included a reorganisation of both the government and the justice system, and comprised of some of the most iconic components of the coming reign of terror. Occurring in parallel to these reforms, the second major development was a further escalation in the factional feud between the Girondins and the Jacobins. In the wake of the king's divisive trial, and with the revolution seemingly on the precipice of defeat, the convention became increasingly rancorous and dysfunctional. Accusations of treason flew thick and fast as both camps waged an uncompromising and ruthless campaign. Over the months that followed, the factions became locked in a fight to the death. Literally. Finally, with the sankulots of the capital continuing to radicalise, the deputies of the mountain were faced with a choice. Would they maintain their unpopular political, social and economic policies, or would they realign themselves to the demands of the people? Choosing to recommit to its alliance with the Parisian sankulots, the Jacobin Club would undergo a major shift as it adopted many of the policies advocated by the ultra-radicals, and in particular, the so-called enraged. These latter developments, the rising factionalism and the Jacobin realignment, will be the focus of the next episode. In this episode, we'll focus on measures adopted to secure the nation from the onslaught of its enemies. We will focus on the institutions of terror. However, before we continue, do keep in mind that these three developments were occurring simultaneously, and they were therefore impacting the evolution of each other. With the armies of the counter-revolution on the march, Paris demanded action. News had arrived of initial Austrian success, and although French forces had yet to collapse, the city soon relived the most unpleasant of memories. Traumatised by the Prussian invasion of the previous summer, the citizens of the capital sought emergency measures in response. After all, the infamous Brunswick Manifesto still rang in their ears. They had been threatened with obliteration if they mistreated the king, and subsequently they went and killed him. Facing the wrath of Germanic steel, emergency measures were an entirely reasonable request. And yet, the convention did nothing. Initially, the national government was paralysed 
bifactional infighting and failed to appreciate the full gravity of the situation. For the Girondins of the convention, it was the mountain which remained the primary threat. From their perspective, it was Jacobins who were responsible for the bloody and barbarous September massacres. It was the Jacobins who had sought their arrest and execution. It was the Jacobins who had desires for a tyrannical dictatorship. And it was the Jacobins who had encouraged the recent disorders in the capital. Given the past success of the revolutionary armies, it was still assumed by deputies across the political spectrum that a rapid and overwhelming victory was at hand. As a result, the setback at the front would shortly be contained. De Maurier and his soldiers would regroup, halt the Austrian advance, and ultimately eliminate a still quite distant danger. Paris, however, was a much closer and imminent threat. As such, when news reached the convention that the Austrians were advancing with speed, the Girondins blocked a prompt response. In a clear demonstration of how suspicion and mistrust had perverted revolutionary politics, leading Girondins dismissed a proposal to dispatch military forces in Paris to the front line. Fearing that the departure of troops would provide an opening for a Jacobin-aligned insurrection, Girondins fixated on their own defence, rather than that of the nations. Of course, from their perspective, those two things were the same thing. Thus, in the convention, Bouzeau stressed the necessity of maintaining order in Paris, while Isnard accused the Montagnards of attempting to subvert parliamentary procedure by hastily proposing emergency measures. Louvet, a fierce critic of Robespierre, took to the floor to proclaim proof of assassination plots against leading Girondin deputies. Unsurprisingly, the Jacobins didn't take this lying down and replied in kind with their own accusations. In short, the convention failed to agree on any useful response. If Nero fiddled while Rome burned, the convention squabbled while Belgium blazed. As dire news continued to arrive from the front, the convention started to get its act together. Or perhaps more accurately, it was forced to get its act together, in no small part by the actions of others. Returning from inspecting the front lines, Danton impressed a sense of urgency on his colleagues and immediately called for a levy of volunteers. Furthermore, the Paris Commune issued a call to arms and the city's sections quickly went into overdrive, rallying men for the cause. But almost immediately, fresh problems arose. As had happened in the summer of 1792, mobilisation efforts in the capital soon hit a snag. Rumours swirled of counter-revolutionary plots, and once again there were concerns that departing volunteers would leave the capital exposed. There was talk of purging the prisons of the traitors within. But in troubling developments, cries also went up for purging the convention itself. Some ultra-radical sans-culottes even attempted an insurrection, but without the pre-organised support of the Commune or the Jacobin Club, it soon lost momentum and came to nothing. Yet this aborted popular action was impactful nonetheless. To the Girondins, it was proof yet again of the dangers of the people of Paris. It was also proof of the sinister intentions of their Montagnard champions, who they perceived to have been behind a foiled plot. After all, they already believed that they had narrowly escaped the September massacres, and now they believed that they had narrowly escaped another attempt on their life and liberty. As you can imagine, this did nothing to encourage the unity and cooperation which the convention so desperately required. Perhaps roused into action by the threat of insurrection, on the 9th of March, the convention 
finally started passing legislation to address the crises at hand. Over the coming weeks, the convention would essentially construct the legal apparatus that would enforce the infamous reign of terror. Four measures were of particular note. Firstly, the introduction of representatives on mission. Secondly, the re-establishment of the Revolutionary Tribunal. Thirdly, the formation of surveillance committees. And finally, the inauguration of the Committee of Public Safety. These measures, along with others adopted in response to the crises of early 1793, would define so much of what was to come. The first cart off the rank were the so-called representatives on mission. With the convention struggling to assert its supremacy in the countryside, the body nominated 82 representatives to promote the government's recruitment efforts. Entrusted with the authority of the convention, the powers and mandates of these representatives expanded over time. Put simply, the representatives on mission were exactly that, deputies of the convention who had been assigned to one of the nation's 80-odd departments. Once they had arrived in their designated location, they acted as the eyes, ears, and most importantly, voice of the convention. Specifically, they were tasked with supervising the activities of public officials. This not only included members of the military and public service, but also the suppliers and contractors for the armies. Furthermore, in the aftermath of de Maurier's treasonous actions in Belgium, a separate group of deputies were assigned to the armies themselves. It was hoped that by directly supervising the army in the field, these deputies would be able to root out further counter-revolutionary plots and do so before they attempted a coup. Now, as just alluded to, the powers granted to these representatives on mission were significant. So significant that historian Albert Sabul actually describes their powers as unlimited. Now, for me, the term unlimited power naturally invokes a very specific scene in Star Wars Episode 3, but alas, the deputies hadn't quite mastered the dark side of the Force. However, Force they still had. Entrusted with the Convention's authority, these deputies had the power to dismiss and detain members of the military, including generals. They could purge local administrations, detain suspects, reorganise local governments, and negotiate contracts with suppliers and merchants. Thus, their powers were considerable, and the representatives on mission were only answerable to their peers in the convention and eventually to the Committee of Public Safety. Put simply, these deputies were the embodiment of the convention in the field, and they had the power to match. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we move on, I do want to touch on two practical implications of all this missioning. Firstly, once you factor in the deputies assigned directly to the armies, the total number of representatives on mission was well in excess of 100. This means that almost 15% of the convention's members were theoretically assigned to duties outside of Paris. This had implications for the convention itself, as many of the representatives on mission were Jacobins, or at least sympathetic to their cause. With such a large number of deputies away from the convention, their absence altered the factional dynamics of the chamber. In the coming months, Girondin deputies would be able to occasionally assert supremacy in the convention, simply because so many Jacobins had been sent into the field. Now, historian George Lefebvre 
implies that this outcome was actually planned by the Girondins. That is to say, he implies that the Girondins purposely supported nominating Jacobin deputies as representatives on mission in order to ensure that the remaining Girondins could control the convention once these deputies had departed. However, he's the only historian I've seen made this claim. Alternatively, I think the nomination of so many Jacobins is more indicative of the fact that the mountain was garnering an increasing amount of support from the unaligned and independently minded deputies of the plain. Now, I suspect the Girondins realised the opportunity presented to them, but I doubt it was a deliberate strategy to fragment their opponents and strengthen their own position in Paris. Furthermore, if this was the result of some grand strategy on the part of the Girondins, it was a questionable one, to say the least. Not as questionable as some of the opening placements I've recently seen in Settlers of Catan, but dubious nonetheless. You see, nominating deputies sympathetic to the Jacobin cause meant that their presence boosted Jacobinism across the nation. After all, here was someone with the full grandeur and power of the convention, and they would privately and potentially publicly tell you that while the convention back in Paris was weakened by factionalism, the sinister faction were those pesky good-for-nothing Girondins who attempted to spare the king. A vocal advocate in favour of the mountain strengthened the Jacobin standing in departments around the country. Furthermore, in early May, the convention authorised representatives on mission to form their own councils. Unsurprisingly, the first place deputies looked for new associates was often the nearest Jacobin club. Thus, as the representatives on mission detained suspects, purged local officials and reorganised various aspects of government, more and more power was being centralised into Jacobin sympathisers. Consequently, while the Girondins may have been able to use the absence of so many deputies to gain a better footing in the convention, the Jacobins were able to use their presence in the departments to better their position across France. But the arrival of the representatives on mission was not the only measure taken to address the crises of March. Next up was the reintroduction of the infamous Revolutionary Tribunal. If you recall, the Revolutionary Tribunal had been established in the wake of the overthrow of the monarchy, and it was created in spite of considerable Girondin opposition. Once created, the tribunal quickly... well, actually, it did next to nothing. Much to the frustration of the city's radical cohorts, the Blade of Justice somehow moved even slower than the latest season of The Witcher. Consequently, its inaction was soon perceived as potential corruption, and some historians argue that this facilitated the eruption of mob justice and the September massacres. In the aftermath of the First Terror, the tribunal had been disbanded. However, now that the nation faced so many threats, it was argued that the tribunal should return. Once again, leading Girondins opposed the measure, and it appeared that the debate would remain unsettled. The president of the convention adjourned the debate for the evening, but then the convention was captivated by one man, Danton. The Mirabeau of the mob demanded the floor. What followed was an exceptional speech, asking how his colleagues could possibly adjourn without taking the great steps demanded by the welfare of the Republic, Danton proceeded to make the case for the tribunal's re-establishment. Alarmed by the dangers menacing the nation, he proclaimed that the welfare of the people demanded great and terrible measures. In the most famous lines of the speech, Danton called on his fellow deputies to embrace the necessity of terror in order to avoid a repeat of the September massacres. Let us profit by the mistakes of our predecessors. Let us do what the Legislative Assembly 
failed to do. Let us be terrible in order that the people may be spared the necessity of being terrible. Let us establish a tribunal, not a good tribunal, to be sure that's impossible, but a tribunal as good as it can be, so that the people may know that the sword of the law is suspended over the heads of its enemies. Danton's words resonated with his colleagues. After much debate, the convention reinstated the Revolutionary Tribunal. Leading Girondins did not take this defeat lying down. Vernieu, perhaps the most capable Girondin orator, claimed that he would sooner die than consent to the Inquisition about to be unleashed. Other Girondins sought to shape the new tribunal in various ways, hoping to avoid a situation in which it could be used for tyrannical purposes. For example, it was proposed that juries would consist of men from all the departments of France, and not from Paris alone. This measure was clearly an attempt to prevent the radicalism of Paris from infiltrating the jury, for if the jury was entirely Parisian, it might be overly sympathetic to the Jacobins. This was an existential threat to the Girondins, as they were all well aware of Saint-Culotte demands to have them removed from the convention and put on trial for treason. However, due to necessity alone, it was deemed that the jury would have to consist of Parisians as well as citizens living in adjacent departments. It was simply impractical to bring men from across the nation when France faced the imminent threat of both invasion and counter-revolution. Interestingly, while many Girondins initially opposed the tribunal, some reversed course in the following weeks. As news filtered in of riots, insurrections and military disasters, the gravity of the situation at hand compelled a number to change their tune. In fact, as historian Timothy Tackett notes, and as we'll discuss shortly, some Girondins were soon embracing far more repressive measures as they sought to stabilise the situation at hand. Furthermore, the Girondins would even attempt to use the tribunal against their own factional enemies. Having warned of Montagnard dictatorship and the risks of inquisitions, hypocrisy was alive and well. But before we move on from the Revolutionary Tribunal, I do want to pick up that last point. The Girondins had consistently opposed the reinstatement of the tribunal on the grounds that it would become a vehicle for dictatorship and tyranny. This was an understandable concern, especially when you look at the origin of the idea. In January 1793, it had been proposed at the Jacobin Club to reinstate the Revolutionary Tribunal for the specific purpose of pursuing the former Girondin Interior Minister Roland. Roland was accused of a long list of crimes, including plans to re-establish the monarchy and assist counter-revolutionaries. Given this, it is argued by some historians that this tribunal was always envisioned as a tool for political witch hunts. It was always going to be used against the Girondins by the Jacobins who had proposed it. Consequently, you can also understand why the Girondins were opposed to its creation. Indeed, if you look through some of the Jacobin Club proceedings at the time of these debates, there's even more reason for the Girondins to be reluctant. On the 4th of March, so not even a week prior to the debate over the tribunal's reinstatement, the Jacobin Club heard from an address of a group of soldiers. In it, they once again called for the former interior minister Roland's trial. But they also went much, much further. The address demanded the trial of the Girondin faction more broadly, and its denunciation of the Girondins left nothing to be interpreted. Here are parts of that address. Insurrection is the holiest of duties when the country is oppressed. The infidel deputies must not only be recalled, 
but their heads must fall under the sword of the law when it is proved that under the pretext of freedom of opinion they have betrayed the interests of the nation. The inviolability of Louis and of the representatives of the people has ruined the Republic. Only good men are inviolable. With language like that, can you really blame the Girondins for remaining fixated on the threat emanating from the Jacobin Club? Can you critique them for their opposition to the new tribunal? The speakers at the Jacobins had proposed the pursuit and death of leading Girondins. Sure, the Jacobins thought their enemies to be traitors to the Republic, but those alleged traitors understandably had a very different view of the situation and just who was committing treason. Thus, in the first weeks of March, it is perhaps unreasonable to expect the Girondins to just drop everything and focus on the Austrian advance. There was already a credible threat against their lives and their perception of what the revolution ought to be. That threat was not some army across the frontier, but the political society down the street. So, some historians use all of this to emphasise the allegedly sinister origins of the tribunal. Stated explicitly, or merely implied, there is an assertion that the factional motivations behind the tribunal's resurrection meant that it was likely to be misused from the beginning. However, not everyone agrees. Marisa Linton, for example, notes that the Jacobins did not hold a majority of votes in the convention, and that there was no way that the measure would have passed the body if it appeared to be overtly political in its purpose. Instead, the tribunal passed because many unaligned deputies of the plane agreed that there was a genuine crisis. Specifically, they agreed that work of counter-revolutionary agents imperiled the revolution's very existence. Their sedition, their subversion, their treason had to be rooted out and eliminated. Furthermore, examples must be made of those who betrayed the Republic, both to prevent outbreaks of extrajudicial justice, as well as to dissuade others from making common cause with the counter-revolution. Consequently, emergency measures, such as the tribunal, needed to be introduced. It is noteworthy that in order to ensure that the tribunal did not go rogue, the deputies initially reserved for themselves a series of powers to help keep the tribunal on a leash. Historian Albert Sabul notes that this included the right to appoint judges and jurymen, as well as the right to initiate prosecutions. In other words, the tribunal would not be able to target political opponents of the Jacobins unless the convention went along with it. Now, it is true that these prerogatives would be modified in the future, making it easier for the persecution of fellow deputies and political opponents. But that wasn't the case when it was initially reinstated. As such, historian Marisa Linton and those who share her views caution that the politicised origins of the body shouldn't diminish the fact that the Revolutionary Tribunal was trying to solve a very legitimate issue, an issue that all deputies agreed was a very real threat, the treason of counter-revolutionaries. But if you take the time to examine Danton's amazing speech, which facilitated the tribunal's creation, you'll notice an interesting proposal. Far from focusing on the tribunal alone, Danton was actually calling for much more than just the body's reinstatement. Instead, the respected Montagnard leader was actually calling for a full reorganisation of the government. In particular, the executive branch of government, currently headed by the ministers in the Executive Council. For Danton, it was plainly obvious that the existing Executive Council was unable 
to meet the challenges of the nation. For example, he lamented that the Minister for the Navy had failed to create a navy. He did not put this down to ineptitude or treason, but rather a lack of energy, capability and alignment with the Convention. To Danton, it was clear that the Ministry, which had been empowered after the fall of the monarchy, was overwhelmed by the numerous crises that plagued it. Surely this fact was obvious to others. And so he called for a new ministry. Backed by Robespierre and others, what this meant was the installation of deputies as ministers, something which had previously not been allowed. You may remember that Danton had been the Minister of Justice after the overthrow of the king, but he had surrendered this post weeks later to sit in the National Convention. Danton was essentially proposing to abandon the separation of powers which theoretically existed, all in an effort to secure the nation's defence. Once again, the Girondins were having none of it. In Jacobin calls to reorganise the machinery of government, the Girondins smelt a trap. No doubt the Jacobins would propose Jacobin ministers. That would make a nice trio with the Jacobin Revolutionary Tribunal and the Jacobin Representatives on Mission. Geez, why don't you just make the whole government a Jacobin entity? With no need to dust off the regular book of replies, leading Girondins decried Danton's proposals as a pathway to dictatorship. His suggested reforms, and others like it, were rejected over the next few days. But the inadequacy of the Executive Council to meet the needs of the moment meant that this issue perpetuated for weeks. Before we move on, Danton's speech is truly amazing. It's cited by historians across the ideological spectrum as the impetus for the Revolutionary Tribunal's resurrection. And when you hear it in its entirety, well, you'll see why. Furthermore, this speech shaped the contours of the debate which would grip the convention for the weeks to come. As a result, the episode extra for this episode is Danton's speech. Hearing the speeches that occurred in the convention is a great way of putting yourself in the shoes of these deputies. It's a fantastic way to understand how they rationalised their decisions and how they viewed the world around them. So, if you're a member of the Grey History community, make sure you check out the episode extra for this episode, unpacking Danton's off-quoted intervention. As a reminder, episode extras are bonus content available to members of the Grey History community, and joining the community is the best way to help secure more Grey History, both now and in the future. In mid-March, the deputies continued to introduce a range of legislative responses to the various crises at hand. With recruitment riots erupting across the nation, and with the Vendee breaking out into full-fledged insurrection, it became evident that further legislation was required. On the 18th of March, the influential deputy Barrer took to the floor of the convention. We first met Barrer during the trial of the king. He was one of the most respected members of the plain, and his intervention against the appeal to the people is perceived by some historians as being critical to the prevention of a referendum on the king's fate. On the 18th, Barrer demanded a series of measures to repress the counter-revolution at home. Ironically, as he made his case by referencing military defeats, he had no way of knowing that on the very same day, de Maurier and his French army was being defeated by the Austrians at the consequential Battle of Neerwinden. This was the most decisive battle of early 1793, and de Maurier's treason was less than two weeks away. However, without this knowledge, and even before de Maurier's attempted coup, the situation was already dire. In the wake of Barrere's impassioned speech, the convention introduced a range of new laws designed to contain and subsequently eliminate seditious activities. These measures included the expulsion of all foreigners 
who could not justify their presence in France, as well as taxes on the wealthy in order to pay for the nation's defence. Furthermore, the émigrés, the people who had left France during the Revolution, particularly aristocrats, well, they were declared civilly dead, allowing the governing authorities to seize their estates and use the proceeds of sale to fund the war effort. Not content with targeting the émigrés alone, the convention also declared former nobles and priests as suspects, depriving them of certain rights and making their detainment easier. In fact, laws were soon passed to deport any non-constitutional priest, as well as execute those priests who had been previously deported. And yes, I know your next question. Where were they sending the priests? Well, their new home was the lovely colony of French Guiana on the northern coast of South America. Back then, French Guiana was the perfect place to send your political undesirables. Between the sun, the insects, and the tropical diseases, well, I'm sure you can guess that the survival rate of this beachside getaway was low, to say the least. To digress even further, French Guiana is still part of France today. Thus, a fun pub trivia fact is in order. Technically, it can be argued that France's largest land border is not Spain or Belgium or Germany, but actually Brazil. Modern-day French Guiana is slightly smaller than the country of Portugal, and it sits right at the top of the South American giant. Anyway, we have now well and truly digressed. So, throughout March and April, the convention passed a series of measures targeting counter-revolutionaries and those suspected of aiding their activities. Interestingly, the attention of the convention was not limited to the reactionary right. Throughout all of this, the convention also prescribed the death penalty for anyone promoting the seizure of private property. This was a measure not against aristocrats, but against some of the most radical members of the Parisian sans-culottes. It was against the so-called enraged and others who supported some of their most extreme proposals. The passing of this decree reiterates the middle-class orientation of the convention, as well as the ongoing Girondin and Jacobin struggle which permeated every aspect of its workings. Furthermore, it proves that the body was seeking to reassert its supremacy against all domestic threats, including those from the revolutionary left. But of the measures taken in mid-March, there are two particularly noteworthy. Firstly, the convention declared that individuals engaged in counter-revolutionary actions, such as armed rebellion, would be declared an outlaw. Outlaws would include those who resisted military recruitment or encouraged others to do so. The punishment for these outlaws would be severe. Agitators would be sent to a military commission and executed within 24 hours. Like the Revolutionary Tribunal, there would be no process for appeal. Historian Marisa Linton notes that it's this often overlooked measure which was the legal justification for the greatest number of deaths during the terror. Although the Revolutionary Tribunal may be the most infamous of the terror's institutions, it was the prompt execution of any suspected insurgent that would really cause blood to flow. Interestingly, this measure, unlike the Revolutionary Tribunal, was not crafted by a Jacobin deputy. Instead, it actually came from Cambaceres, an unaligned deputy who would eventually rise to prominence during the Napoleonic era. Specifically, he was a key author of the Napoleonic Code. It is noteworthy that some Girondins supported this undoubtedly severe approach, which is ironic, given that it's this legislation which would later be used against their faction with such severity. In addition to the decree against armed rebels, the convention also instituted surveillance committees in the second half of March. Such committees had been spontaneously created in previous crises, but now they were formalised. Henceforth, 
each municipality would have a surveillance committee, as would the sections of Paris and other large urban centres. The role of these surveillance committees was to, well, surveil. No prizes for guessing that one. The powers of these committees were considerable. They could investigate suspicious activities, detain suspects, and refer individuals to the Revolutionary Tribunal. Furthermore, they were charged with keeping an eye on foreigners in their municipality, as well as issuing so-called citizenship certificates. These certificates were almost like a sort of internal passport for good citizens. It was a document issued by one's local surveillance committee, which essentially attested to your patriotism and loyalty to the Republic. Thus, the citizenship certificate enabled its holder to prove their Republican credentials, especially when conducting activities or business in other departments. Although it would take time for these new committees to find their feet, the surveillance committees would soon become an integral part to the machinery of government. Tasked with monitoring suspects, conducting investigations, and testifying on behalf of good citizens, the power of these committees was considerable. Grey history needs your support. For as little as half a cup of coffee, you can do your part to keep grey history on the air. You'll gain access to hours of exclusive bonus episodes, as well as bonus content which accompanies every episode of the show. You'll also get an ad-free feed, so no mid-episode interruptions like this one. Most importantly, you'll be doing your part to keep this independent podcast alive, because it's only with the support of the community that grey history can keep going. Hit pause now and follow the link in the show notes, on the website, or just Google Grey History Patreon. Help produce history that isn't black and white, and help keep grey history running. I look forward to welcoming you personally. Taken together, the measures adopted throughout the second half of March were severe and far-reaching. They were also deemed necessary. Deputies of all political stripes backed a variety of severe decrees as they attempted to battle with what they thought was a coordinated assault on the revolution. One led by both foreign armies abroad and counter-revolutionary conspirators at home. Although the Revolutionary Tribunal had been suggested and championed by the Jacobins and bitterly resisted by the Girondins, some of these later measures generally received support from across the convention. That's not to say that these measures were unanimously approved, but they were, to a degree, less contentious. Yet, contention was a speciality of the convention, and the body soon returned to its fractious ways. As the crises piled up throughout March, leading Jacobins returned to their calls for a reorganisation of the government. In particular, the issue of the executive branch remained at the foreground of the convention's divisions, with the Mountain arguing that the current ministry was incapable of responding to the numerous perils which endangered France. Then, at the end of the month, de Maurier's treason was revealed. This, in combination with the emerging civil war in the Vendée, changed the dynamics of the debate. While the convention was unwilling to adopt Danton's proposals in early March, events had moved in his favour. As news of de Maurier's attempted coup reached Paris, panic set in immediately. The city's gates were closed, surveillance committees worked throughout the night, and anyone deemed suspicious was promptly arrested and detained. In the alarm induced by the treason of the so-called saviour of the Republic, leading Jacobins once again made the case that France needed a new executive if the nation was to survive. In the days which followed, the convention agreed and created a new committee. This committee would act as a centralised executive authority. To put that into simple English, it was the new head of the executive branch of government. Okay, fine, 
you caught me. That wasn't simple English either, I admit it. Let's back up and try again. In the modern American system, Congress passes laws, but it doesn't implement them. That's the responsibility of the presidency and those in the executive branch of government, such as the cabinet secretaries and the broader administration. Likewise, in the modern British system, Parliament passes laws, but it's only a subgroup of MPs, the government of the day, that acts as the executive branch and actually runs the day-to-day governance of the nation. Each country has its own political institutions, but conceptually, one often talks about the powers of the legislature and the powers of the executive. In short, the executive branch is generally responsible for putting laws and programs into practice, while the legislative branch is generally responsible for passing laws in the first place. In the initial years of the French Revolution, the king had headed up the executive branch of government. He could not pass laws, but he and his ministers were responsible for the general administration of the government and the implementation of the laws passed by the elected assembly. After the fall of the monarchy, France had no king, and so the void was filled with a stopgap measure, the Executive Council. This was just a fancy title for a new ministry, and each minister continued to focus on running their own department as they saw fit. As we've seen in previous episodes, the Executive Council could be, well, a tad dysfunctional. Ministers didn't always play nice with one another, particularly when some were staunch Girondins and others were committed Jacobins. For example, the feud between the Interior Minister Roland and the War Minister Pash paralysed cooperation within the Executive Council. As the crises piled up during March 1793, the Jacobins were calling for a replacement to the body. Deeming it ineffectual, they sought a reorganisation of the ministry, hoping to revitalise the day-to-day governance of the nation. With a new ministry, one comprised of deputies, it was believed that decrees would be implemented with a sense of urgency, and that greater alignment could be achieved between the legislature and the executive. Given the existential threats menacing the revolution, this improvement to the operation of government was critically important. Without it, the Republic was as good as dead. Once de Maurier's treason in Belgium became clear, the magnitude of this treachery jolted the convention into action. It compelled deputies to act, even if they had previously been hesitant to support some sort of reform. Critically, de Maurier's attempted coup and the threat it represented encouraged some representatives to put aside their cherished principles of the separation of powers. What did it matter if deputies of the legislative branch were also running the executive when the alternative seemed to be a restored monarchy? What did it matter if the convention empowered itself when to do otherwise empowered the counter-revolution? Hence, in early April 1793, the mountain, with the support of the plain and even some Girondins, finally reorganised the executive branch. On the 6th of April, the convention formally created the Committee of Public Safety. The new committee was tasked with supervising the work of the ministers of the Executive Council. It also had the broader mandate of improving the administration of the government. To be clear, the new committee did not replace the ministry outright, although that had been suggested by some. Instead, it would oversee the ministers, and it did have the power to override them if the committee felt it justified. Thus, Although it was not replaced, the authority and independence of the Executive Council had been curtailed significantly. As an aside, those listeners who consider themselves champions of efficiency might be thinking, well, this sounds a little redundant. And yes, it probably was. However, many deputies still believed in the merits of the separation of powers. They still had concerns about vesting executive powers 
completely in members of the convention, as those members also controlled the legislative branch. As such, some semblance of separation was maintained by ensuring that the deputies remained ineligible to serve as ministers. So the new committee would supervise the ministers of the Executive Council rather than simply replace them. But yes, in practice, the ministry was clearly in a subordinate position and some committee members would go on to become de facto ministers in their area of expertise. After about 12 months, this charade came to an end and the position of ministers was scrapped entirely. With a mandate to supervise and speed up the work of the Executive Council, the new Committee of Public Safety was essentially in a position to administer the government and implement the decrees passed by the Convention. Hence, it was essentially the head of the executive branch of government. Some deputies even suggested it be called an executive commission, as that's what it was. But let's be frank, the Committee of Public Safety is a much sexier title, so let's be glad that I don't have to say executive commission for the next couple of dozen episodes. With its broad mandate to improve the day-to-day governance of the nation, the new committee acquired considerable influence and power over time. In fact, some historians consider the power of the Committee of Public Safety to be almost limitless, but it was not limitless on day one. The convention had no intention of setting up a body that could rival its own power, and so the original committee was elected on a monthly basis by the convention. Furthermore, the convention could change the committee's membership at any time, creating a situation which historian Robert Palmer refers to as a legal dependency. In other words, the famous Committee of Public Safety started off in a clearly subordinated position to the convention, and it took time for the institution to assert its eventual power and autonomy. Critically, In addition to overseeing the existing Executive Council and streamlining the operations of government, the new Committee of Public Safety was given a very important mandate. In times of emergency, the committee was authorised to take whatever measures were necessary for the nation's defence. This gave the committee, which met in secret, the potential to wield a tremendous amount of power. It didn't have that power on day one, but it would amass it over time. Now, before we wrap up, we must talk about the composition of the initial Committee of Public Safety. Consisting of nine members, two groups were particularly well represented. The first were the Jacobins, and in particular, men associating with Danton. With factional loyalty being a fluid thing in the 18th century, The exact number of Jacobins on the Committee of Public Safety isn't exactly agreed upon. However, perhaps as many as seven of the nine deputies initially elected to serve were members of the Jacobins. Furthermore, of these, pretty much all of them hailed from the more moderate Dantonist wing of the mountain. Unsurprisingly, many historians therefore note the domineering role of moderate Montagnards in the initial committee. Most importantly, Danton himself was elected to the new body, allowing him to exert a commanding influence in the months which followed. In fact, his position was so commanding that historian David Andres describes Danton as the committee's unofficial leader. In a way, this was a familiar place for Danton. Remember, he had played an outsized role in the Executive Council when he had been named the Minister of Justice in the wake of the fall of the monarchy. Turning our attention back to April 1793, it's important to note that Danton's presence on the new committee was not permanent. The committee's composition would change, and Danton and his associates will be replaced in just a matter of months. What this means is that THE Committee of Public Safety the one so oft discussed during the Reign of Terror, is really a completely different beast. Yes, 
future committees will also be dominated by Jacobin deputies of the convention, but the future change in membership will have profound impacts on the approach and policies of the new executive. For now, the more moderate Jacobins, embodied by Danton, dominate the committee. But that won't last forever. The second noteworthy aspect of the committee's position is that it was not an exclusively Jacobin affair. You may think that the Girondins would also be well represented on the committee, given their status as the other major faction within the convention. That would be an entirely reasonable assumption. It would also be incorrect. Increasingly tarnished in the eyes of some deputies of the plane, and having resisted calls for a reorganisation of the executive branch, leading Girondins failed to partake in the new executive. Instead, two prominent members of the plane were elected, and we've already met both. The first was Barrere, who we heard from earlier this episode. Barrere played an influential role in the trial of the king, both in its proceedings and its direction. As the then president of the convention, Barrere had played a leading role in questioning Louis XVI when he appeared before the convention in early December. More importantly, it was Barrere who spoke convincingly against the Girondins' proposed appeal to the people, an act which many historians credit with scuttling the national referendum. Thus, while Barrere may have been one of the most prominent leaders of the plain, he was a Jacobin-leaning independent. Joining Barrere was Lindaire, another unaffiliated deputy who had played a leading role in drafting the indictment against Louis XVI. Like Barrere, he had voted for the king's execution, further separating him from some of the more iconic positions of the Girondin faction. Unlike Danton and his associates, both Barrere and Lindaire will remain on the Committee of Public Safety until after the Reign of Terror. Once the committee stops changing in its composition, we'll more thoroughly introduce its members. But note that the only consistency within this new executive body was these two members of the plane. So, these reforms make up the foundations of the coming Reign of Terror. The representatives on mission, the Revolutionary Tribunal, the Surveillance Committees, the Committee of Public Safety, and the various laws targeting rebels, outlaws, priests, and all the good-for-nothing agents of the counter-revolution. Taken together, these measures will enable one of the most consequential and controversial periods of not only French history, but modern history more broadly. Created in piecemeal fashion and sponsored by a variety of authors, there was nothing particularly systematic about the tools which would impose terror systematically. Yet, these measures were far from sufficient to save France. A house divided cannot stand. In the face of civil war, foreign invasion, treasonous espionage and radical insurrection, the convention remained crippled by division. Factionalism reigned supreme. If the revolution was to survive, the status quo could not. And so begins a bitter and extraordinary fight. A fight to the death. In the next episode, we return to the events in Paris. Armed with new laws and escalating crises, the Girondins and the Jacobins engage in one last dance. The victor was far from certain, but the bloodletting was guaranteed. Thank you for listening to episode 57, The Institutions of Terror. In the next episode, we'll unpack the final showdown between the Girondins and the Jacobins. You don't want to miss it. In the episode extra for this episode, we'll focus on Danton's amazing speech, demanding the Revolutionary Tribunal and a reorganisation to the government. It's a speech that historians across the ideological spectrum routinely cite for its importance, particularly in resurrecting the Revolutionary Tribunal in early March. 
Speeches are a great way to really experience the discourse of the times, so I recommend you check it out. As always, a huge thank you to those sponsoring the show, as it's only the generous support of the community that keeps Grey History on the air. If you're enjoying Grey History, if you'd like to continue to enjoy Grey History, then I need your help to keep it going. For as little as $2 an episode, for as little as half a cup of coffee, you can help promote history that isn't black and white and get a whole bunch of exclusive perks and benefits in the process. Just follow the link in the show notes, on the website, or Google Grey History Patreon. Another warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show, and a special call out again to the amazingly generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, and Orga. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.